I want to start tonight, or this morning, or whatever it is that we are in, uh, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. You don't need to go there, but I'm just going to read it. Jeremiah chapter 29, um, starting in verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah is an ancient prophet, and he's speaking to the people who are in exile. They're in a place that they don't belong. They've been taken out of the place they belong. They've been stripped of their identity. And Jeremiah, God says through Jeremiah, look, if you seek me, if you seek me with all your heart, I will find you and I will deliver you out of captivity. When I was uh, a long time ago, because I've been married 23 years now, uh, on Friday, yay, you should clap. Uh, my wife's doing nursery, so, you, you know, clap for her when you see her. But, um, because she needs more clapping than I do. Um, but when we were dating after a year or so, or when we both went off to college, I went to ASU, she went up to Chicago, um, we broke up, which many of you know. But really the reason that we broke up was more about me than it was about her. I mean, I was PO'd that she broke up with me. It was the first time she ever saw me really angry, because I just couldn't believe that she would do such a thing to me. But part of it was, was where my seeking and searching was. I really was seeking and searching her to be like with all my heart. Like she was the one who was going to deliver me. And she was the one that was going to make my life work for me. And she needed to break up with me. I mean, she broke up with me for some bad reasons too. But the good ones were, was that she was feeling the pressure of me idolizing her and her having to be my God. And that wasn't working for her at all, or for me. So we're in this series in Daniel, and we're calling it the Daniel Project. And for the first six chapters, uh, Daniel is this wonderful narrative. And it has stories that if you grew up in church, you probably knew them. And if you're older, you kind of played them out on a felt board, and you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who, who didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard at least of the lion's den, like Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into a fiery furnace and not even smelling like smoke. Right? You, you might know those two stories, but these are fun, adventurous stories for the most part. Right? And they're narratives that all of a sudden we hit chapter 7 last week, and everything kind of gets a little crazy. And in chapter 7, all the way to chapter 12, we have what we call apocalyptic narrative, or we have what you would call revelation. Which really all it means is, is that God is going to pull back the veil a little bit and kind of, but not completely, show us how it works. Like what's going on, why things are the way they are, sort of behind the scenes. And chapter 7 starts out with these horrific four beasts. They, they're not nice beasts and they get worse and worse. And, and what they represent most likely is national powers, nations, countries. But because they're so deformed, they also represent 
just the dark evil powers that are behind countries and nations, right? They're beasts and they're destructive and they devour. But what chapter 7 gives us is the fact that God, and we get a picture of Jesus called the Son of Man, destroys all of that. That he's victorious no matter how the beasts act. And so we talked about last week, how do you identify a beast, right? Because the reality is, if we're going to really kind of search and think through some of this, you might be a beast. You might be the ugly lion with wings or the bear propped up on its side. How do you identify a beast? And so what we, we looked at Micah 6.8. And let me uh, quickly read Micah 6.8 to you. Micah is another ancient prophet. In Micah 6.8, he kind of gives us sort of how you can identify a beast. It says, He, speaking of God, has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Okay? The way you identify a beast is that it distorts justice, it distorts mercy, and it is arrogant. It pulls people away from humility, right? That's what those monsters were. God is contrasted with that because God loves justice, God loves mercy, and he's always calling us to walk humbly before him. He loves peace, right? To walk away from God is to walk into chaos. So that's how you kind of identify a beast. That's where we kind of left off. Now, Daniel 7 is just that. It's, it's a pretty crazy chapter that wants to help us begin to think about the monsters, the beasts that rule our world, and how you and I might engage with them, and how we end up getting caught up in them. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, it takes another turn. We're going to get some more, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to get some more visions. And you heard a little bit of it, but I'm going to reread it. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, the importance of this is that in Daniel chapter 7, we see beasts that don't look normal, and we see clouds, and we get a view into the throne room of God. But at the beginning of this vision, it's on the ground, in a location between Iraq and Iran. Like, this is a spot when Daniel says, here's where I was in my vision. Everybody's, yeah, I, I've been there. I've heard about that. I know where that is. So Daniel's saying, whatever's about to be talked about is about stuff that's going to happen in the world in a more tangible sense. Okay, so he, the vision, God kind of is, is communicating that to Daniel. Now, in my vision, I saw myself, well, I saw that, I read that, so we don't want to read that again. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. You notice that this ram and, and the goat are not distorted animals. They're actually animals that are normal. 
A ram is a normal animal. So usually when that happens, when you read that in prophecy, that means we're going to be talking about a particular nation, an actual nation. So here's this ram. It represents an actual nation. But there's something interesting in this passage as we're going to follow it is it's going to be talking about power. Right? So this ram is a very powerful ram who dominates all the other nations. But what does this ram do? This ram does whatever it pleases. So power, when someone has power and it does whatever it pleases, it's destructive, right? Because all the other animals could not stand against it, right? So stage one of, of power and of this, this process of animals is that here you have power, unbridled power, that does as it pleases. That's stage one. Got this animal that does what it pleases with its power. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him in the ground, to the ground and trampled on him. And none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in his place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. All right, so we got the goat now who shows up. Now, a, a Middle Eastern person, anybody reading this who knew anything about farming knows that goats don't beat rams. Right? Because when a goat and a ram fight, or goats fight, they get up on their hind legs first. Rams don't get on their hind legs. So this is, all this probably is in, in God's way of thinking, of saying, hey, this is important. You should pay attention. Goats don't normally beat rams. Right? Pay attention to what's going on here. Now look at what happens to power. First, power just does whatever it pleases, and people get hurt. But this time, power not only does what it pleases, but it's violent, and it tramples people. Right? And nobody can stand in its way. Right? So we have power that does what it pleases in stage one. Stage two, we have power that is violent and destructive in a way that has to be noted. Okay? So it gets amped up. Right? Power gets amped up. Let's see. Verse nine. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew into power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heaven and it threw some of the starry host to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, Another, and another Holy One said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the hosts that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take... 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re 
consecrated. All right, so we have stage one. Power does what it pleases. People get hurt. Stage two, it's amped up and it's violent, right? And it, it tramples over people. And not only the one power is lost, and we now have a more violent power. And out of a more violent power, what springs is somebody. I don't know why I'm doing that, but somebody who begins to challenge who God is. And not only do they challenge who God is or God Himself, they begin to challenge God's people. The falling of the starry hosts, that's usually a reference to Israel. All the sacrifices, we're talking about a reference to Israel, to God's people. All of a sudden, God's people are being persecuted, and not only persecuted by one of these powers who says, I am God, not your God, and wants to stop the worship of God. So you see this escalation of power. Power seems benevolent enough, but takes control of things and does what it wants. Then power gets extremely violent, and begins to trample things. And out of violent power comes somebody who challenges who God is. And challenges God's people and begins to persecute them. So Daniel has this vision. So the question becomes, why is this vision important? Well, the whole theme of Daniel is here we have a man who's been brought into exile. And he's raised up into power. And over and over again, he faces power. And the people that he loves and are his people are under the crushing hand of power. So when you are stripped of everything, when you are suffering, you feel like you don't have any power. Right? You are helpless and hopeless. Like there isn't you do not know what to do. You and I, when we read Daniel, you might not make this connection, but you and I are also exiles. Right? We we talk about we talked about this a little bit as we've gone through, but in First Peter, we open up Daniel chapter one by reading this little phrase. The Apostle Peter says to all of us and to the people of his time, as he writes his first letter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, so that would be God's children, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We are sojourners. Some translations say exiles. Some say strangers. What it means is you and I do not belong here, right? We don't belong here. We're exiles. So why the vision? What's important about the vision? Why will we have this vision? Why does Daniel have the vision? Because you and I need to know what the beast looks like. Because the power of the beast is very seducing, seductive. Right? You and I want power. Because we feel helpless. And power offers us stuff. I talked about this last week. I mean, if you look at our political system, power offers us something to join in, to grab hold of. The reason that that Daniel is given this vision is the people of Israel need to know what they're being invited into. What is is they can surrender to. You and I need to know this too. Now, 
in Daniel. There's a clue to like where we need to go. So if we go back to Jeremiah and we think about what Jeremiah says at the same time that Daniel is around, the same time as these visions are being seen, Jeremiah says that if you seek me, like if you seek God, and if you search God with all your heart, he's going to find you and deliver you. Well, I think Daniel gives us a clue as to what it looks like to seek God in the midst of these kinds of vision, visions and begin to understand what it looks like to be in relationship with God. If you look at what verse 15 says about Daniel's response to this, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it. If you jump back to verse 5, it says, as I was thinking about this. Here's the thing. Daniel did not just wake up one day and have this vision and think, oh, I should maybe think about what God has to say in this vision. Now, Daniel was already living out a lifestyle of three things. Daniel was thinking about the things of God. Daniel was trying to understand the things of God. And Daniel was watching for God. And they all show up in this, pant, this passage because it's the way he engages the vision. Right? So, so the invitation that God gives you and I through Daniel is to begin to think about where we are and where we're engaging with God. So if we go back to my story about who I, am, who I was with my wife, she was the thing I sought. She was the God that I looked for. And here, and this may seem kind of odd to you, but what the beasts offer, yes, they're important to think about them as nations, and we're going to get into that interpretation, but what the beasts offer in general is power, and unbridled power, and unbridled power makes you feel good about yourself. And it's the same for drugs, it's the same for your spouses, it's the same for your kids. When you make them the thing that you seek to make you feel good about yourself, right, they become a power that can devour you right, and eat you alive. Things can become a power that devour you and battle and consume you, and you can become one of those things. But Daniel didn't come about this vision because he just woke up one day. Daniel was at a place where he was thinking about the things of God. He was searching God out. Daniel didn't come to this place because he woke up one day. It was because he was watching for God to speak to him in the midst of power. And he was trying to ponder what was going on and what God's words were. This is how he ends up having the vision. Because what happens is that when you seek God and you search God with your whole heart, you are given visions. God communicates with you. You're given relationship. Understanding happens. So let's look at how this vision breaks down. In chapter 8, this is the only prophecy where it is really, really specific. Exactly, like the vision is interpreted and told what will happen, and it happens. Right? There's nowhere in the Bible where it says A plus B equals C, except Daniel chapter 8. This is an A plus B equals C chapter. So here, let's listen to the interpretation. Okay. There before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So Gabriel, this is the first time he shows up in the Old Testament. He's going to give the vision. 
As he came near to the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed times of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia, the Medes and the Persians. Right? So we need to go back to the beginning of this chapter. Daniel has the vision right while at the end of the Babylonian kingdom. So the Medes and the Persians haven't shown up. They're around, but they haven't shown up. Babylon is the big bad guy. So the ram is the Medes and the Persians. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kings that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Now, if you know anything about history, you know that Babylon was there, then the Medes and the Persians. Now, think about this. The horns, the Persians came later, but they're more powerful. So that's why the horns are different sizes on the ram, right? So the Medes and the Persians come. So Daniel predicts the Medes and the Persians. And then who comes along to swipe the Medes and the Persians away we know from history? The Greeks. So Daniel predicts this. God tells him this is how it's going to happen. And it happens that way. Okay. Now, just for a little history lesson, the long horn, right? The, the king of the goat, right? Well, for those of you who know history, who's the king of the Greeks? Who? Alexander the Great, right? Alexander Great, and how long was his reign? It was like eight years of conquest, and then he was broken. It was broken. He died. And four generals, who I'm not going to try to pronounce all their four names. If you want, come up. We can, or just Wikipedia. You can see his four generals, right? He had his four generals who stretched out all over the known world. In fact, the reason that Christianity spread is because of Alexander the Great, because he Hellenized the known world, so everybody spoke Greek. Like, it was Koine Greek was what everybody knew eventually. So it made it easy for things to move. Right? So this part, we know 100%, there it is, A plus B equals C. God said this is how it's going to happen. It happened. Now, what's interesting about this is if you read Josephus, you will find out that Alexander the Great did not destroy Jerusalem. He raised Gaza, and a priest has this dream and meets him on the road and shows him Daniel and says, look, you're in it. And he's like, oh. And so he goes in and worships God and does not destroy Jerusalem. He still, they still rule it, but he doesn't raise it. So he, and you know, and most historians will say this is one of Josephus's fantastical, you know, like things that he's put in his stuff. Who knows? But it's a pretty cool story about God's prediction. So this is that cool. Now the prophecy gets a little weird. Right, so we'll just kind of continue on with the interpretation. So we got the four kingdoms. Um, and then I think we're in verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will rise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. 
When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the morning that has been given to you. Oh boy, paper is too thin. It's true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business, and I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. So this next part, what we have is out of the four horns, rises up another king who becomes more powerful, who begins to threaten God's people and desecrate God's temple, and eventually, it says, God takes care of him, and this vision is disturbing. Now, lots and lots of people have different interpretations about this passage, but what we do know is that there was a man named Antiochus IV of Epiphanes who rose up out of those four generals, and he thought he was a god. Epiphany means the glorious one. Like, that's what he thought. In fact, he had another title at the beginning. It was basically the god Antiochus the fourth, the glorious one. He, so Israel, the Jewish people, had returned from exile, many of them anyway, and they, when, when they heard that he had died, they celebrated. But he didn't die. So he came back and killed 100,000 of them, 40,000 in one day, slaughtered a pig on the altar, put Zeus's head on the altar, and for six years stopped the sacrifice is and stop the worship of God and pronounce himself as God. Now, many people think, okay, this is what the text is talking about. But it's not as clear as the goat and the ram, right? Because God just says the goat is this, the ram is this. The rest of it we kind of have to figure out. Other people think that this has to do with a future event, with someone who's going to set themselves up as a king and as going and is going to persecute God's people and it has yet to come. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But here's what I want to caution you about interpreting apocalyptic language. Okay. So up in that text, you saw the question of how long is this going to last, and it says two thousand three hundred days and evenings. Right. So nobody really knows what that actually means, and many many people have different ideas about it. But um, a while back, some guy decided that that 2,300 represented years because of some passages in Revelation and some passages in November, or November, passages in November, in Numbers. Um, there are maybe some passages in November I don't know about. But um, in Numbers, it just mean that it's years. And so he figured out, and this is a while back, that it was, that God was coming, Jesus was coming back in 1844. Well, as we all know, God did not come back in 1844. And so and if you know anything about church history, this rocked Christianity and, and out of that event is where we get the Seventh-day Adventists. It's where we get Jehovah's Witnesses. It, it splintered a lot of people's faith, and they had to begin to scramble to re-explain things. It's very dangerous to begin to try to interpret things specifically unless God tells you that the ram represents the Medes and the Persians and the goat is the Greeks. Like, you have to be careful what you're, how you're interpreting these things. So... How is it then 
that you and I, are, what are we supposed to get out of a passage like this? We can get courage. God is in control, right? He, he knows what's going to happen, and he's running things, and he's going to be victorious, and we can, we can hold on to that into our life. But how are you and I to deal with these things? How do we understand a passage like this? Well, I, I want to make a suggestion that if you think back to my story with my wife, the reason, her breakup with me was a jolt in my relationship with God. Because what it did was made me rethink who was important. And so for the period of time that we were broken up, I dedicated my life to just pursuing God and spent hours and hours every day, probably because I was just desperate for God to change her heart. There was some motivation there. But, but I shifted my priorities. Um, the church calendar puts us in Lent right now. And Lent is us, obviously you've heard me say this, but it's 40 days before Easter with Sundays. And it is, for the entire church, a jump starting. It is what happened. It's the breaking up, you know, my girlfriend breaking up with me. It's a jump starting of our life and saying, okay, you need to reset your priorities and you need to become a person who is thinking about the things of God, watching for God to act, and attempting to understand what he's doing. That you need that pattern back in your life. And so we ask people to fast in order that you can put back into your life thinking about the things of God, watching for God, and trying to understand what God's doing. Right? That's what you're replacing. So if you stopped eating a meal, that's what you're supposed to do. If you stopped watching TV, that's what you're supposed to do. If you stopped eating chocolate, I don't know how long it takes to eat a chocolate bar, but you need to take that time when you want that chocolate to begin that process, right? You're re-jumping, you're kind of jump-starting and reorienting your life and adding an intention. Because remember, Jeremiah says that if you seek and if you search with all of your heart, you will be found by God and that God will change you, that God will bring you out of captivity. So how do we look at a passage like this? How would we ponder and think about it? Well, here's the thing that I would offer you. There's, there's a, a way to begin this process in Lent. Because in Lent, to reorient yourself, you need to reorient yourself around Scripture. So the first question you need to ask yourself when you read a passage like Daniel 8 is, what do I need to know? What do I need to know? Well, I would argue what you need to know is that there are powers, and when powers are unleashed, they trample people and they get violent and they begin to set themselves up against God. That's what you need to know from this passage. You could know other things, but that's what I think you need to know. You need to answer that question by thinking upon what God is saying. Answer the question. Not what are the ten things you need to know? What are the one thing you need to know? Second question you need to ask yourself is why do I need to know it? Why is it important? My argument to you is the reason that it's important is that if you do not know what the beast is, it will suck you in and devour you. Right? Peter says that Satan goes to and fro looking for whom he can devour. That literally in the Greek means looking with whom he can slurp up like a lion. Into, you, know, you know a lion's like when it eats and they flappy little spit everywhere? That's the idea. It's just like sucking you in, devouring you, slurping you up. So you need to know what the beast looks like and that what unbridled power looks like and how it can seduce you so that you don't get sucked in. Okay, so what do I need? To know why do I need to know it? The second thing, or the third thing you need to ask then, in response to this, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, it's pretty simple. In this passage, you need to imitate Daniel. 
And that is, you need to think, watch, and ponder the things of God. Well, how do you do that? Right? So the fourth question is, what do you need to do? Why do you need to do it? Okay. So, first question, what do you need to know? Second question, why do you need to know it? First question, what do you need to do? Third, fourth question, why do you need to do it? Here's why you need to do it. Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews gives us in chapter 1 an explanation of who Jesus is, and it's beautiful and poetic. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, note that, in these last days, and that's the note of Hebrews, everything is about the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior, much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to those for to which of the angels they got on. Oh, I don't want to read that part, but superior to theirs. Okay, so there's this beautiful picture of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Okay, so part of the thinking and the pondering and the watching is that you and I are thinking and pondering about Jesus and what Jesus has done. So why do we do that? Because chapter 2, verse 1 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. This is one of the most powerful pictures in the New Testament. Because what it says is if you do not tie yourself off tightly, like a boat tied off tightly in the harbor, when the storm comes at night, your boat will drift away. And so when the sailor shows up and he didn't tie his boat off, his boat is gone. It's drifted away. Who knows where his boat is, right? Well, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is if you do not tie yourself tightly to God and what you have heard about Jesus, you will wake up in the morning and drift away. You will wake up in the morning and be consumed by the goat and the ram and the arrogant voice. And you will find yourself lost. So what is Lent then? Lent, in a way, is us grabbing hold of what Daniel has to say to us and, and say, okay, today, as I begin to prepare for the celebration of God's resurrection, I am going to make a choice to tie the ropes tighter to Jesus in my life. I, I'm going to intentionally do this. Jeremiah says, doesn't say, you know, Jesus comes and conjoles us. You know, if you search, and if you search with my whole heart, your whole heart, you will, I will find you. You will find me, right? It's an intentional thing. So that's, I think, the invitation of the prophetic. It's a God who can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the universe, and if it's that kind of God that you are worshiping, then that's a God who will not let you drift away if you tie yourself tightly to him. That's the invitation of Lent. And that's the invitation that I'm offering you today. And I think that's the invitation of Daniel. And I think I've gone way over. So, let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you for that willingness to be challenged, and I ask that you would uh, bless the rest of our time together. Amen.